0: Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and I had the opportunity to appear as a guest on Dolph Goldenberg's fantastic, Successful Nonprofits podcast. What you're about to hear is a bonus edition of Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, which is actually what Dolph and I are calling a reverse episode Last week, Dolph published our conversation on his feed, and now you will get to hear it in its entirety on our feed as well. Please enjoy my conversation with Dolph, and make sure you check out other episodes through our show notes of the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. Enjoy.
1: Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. There are a lot of suggestions out there for how you can bring in more fundraising dollars. It might be enhance your development team. It could be update your strategic or your fundraising plans. But for many small and medium-sized nonprofits, they scratch their heads and say, that just seems like a pipe dream. With limited funds, limited staff, and limited time, many small and medium-sized nonprofits feel like they don't even have the resources to implement one or two fundraising best practices, much less whatever enhancing the development team may look like, or go beyond and do some of the other suggestions that are out there. And so today, we are going to discuss how small and medium-sized nonprofits can build their fundraising infrastructure Joining me is Patton McDowell, founder and president of PMA Consulting, which helps nonprofits with strategic planning, fundraising, and talent development. Patton has decades of hands on experience. He started his career with the Special Olympics and led fundraising teams at two universities. And of course, He also started his own consulting firm, which we've already mentioned, PMA Consulting. And at that firm, he has worked with over 225 nonprofits, which probably makes him one of the most prolific and successful fundraising consultants in the nation today. In addition to all of that, Patton also hosts his very own podcast, Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership. I should mention that this is a very special reverse episode of the podcast. This is the first time I've actually done a reverse episode. I've been wanting to for years, and Patton was game to do it. So we're going to publish this on our feed, and Patton is going to put it out on his own podcast feed as well. Just to let you all know, listeners, we're doing a reverse one with Patton as well, so we're going to do the same thing where one of Patton's episodes is going to be on this feed. If this is your first time hearing the Successful Nonprofits podcast, or better yet, if this is your first time hearing the Successful Nonprofits podcast, either because you just found it or because you listen to Patton's podcast, Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, welcome. I'm glad you're here. So join me in welcoming Patton to the Successful Nonprofits podcast. Hey Patton, welcome. We're so glad you're here.
0: Dolph, delighted to be with you. Fun to be part of this conversation.
1: So share with me maybe the story of a client, a small or medium-sized client that faced some obstacles in putting together some infrastructure for their fundraising efforts.
0: You said it well, Dolph, in your introduction. the, The limitations many small and medium nonprofits face, I think, creates two general problems. Number one is what I call volume fundraising. Let's just ask everybody we know for money. It feels efficient, and I understand the math. If we could just get $50 from everybody on our mailing list, then our budget needs are met. But of course, as you know, it never works that way. And so that's one of the first challenges I think organizations have to face, which is to focus and because the second related challenge, I think, is thematic. In other words, what I would call desperation fundraising, instead of talking about where you're going and the impact you're having on your audiences, you talk about things like meeting budget, or we're not going to survive, or things like that. And, and to me, those two challenges affect a lot of smaller nonprofits, and it's understandable but I've certainly felt like they don't need to fall victim to either one of them. I
1: think so often those two challenges also merge for nonprofits. I think especially right now, given the recession that we're in, I think those two so often merge where you're doing the spray and pray volume (laughs) fundraising, where you're asking everybody in every way you can. And you're also going out with that Mayday, the ship is on fire message. And that's probably a bad message to send when you're when you're sending it out to anyone other than your closest, most trusted major donors.
0: Exactly right. I mean, there are friends and family that may rescue you under those circumstances or that messaging, but you just don't inspire confidence. And and we need confidence in our donors and investors in whatever format. And that's why, again, I've suggested some ways that perhaps can help them do so.
1: Let's unpack that because I I would be willing to bet there are some organizations out there right now that are definitely feeling the pinch of the recession. So if they're feeling that pinch, instead of going out to the world and saying, we're in trouble, what should they be doing?
0: Well, number one, I think it starts with a focused orientation to your existing donor base. I call it the 2010-5 model. 20 individuals and families, 10 corporations or businesses, and five foundations. Now, those numbers are not magic, but often they provide, number one, a framework to focus and prioritize. Instead of chasing everybody at once, let's think about who have been our most supportive donors. And notice it's proportionate to, as you know, Dolph, where generally philanthropy comes from. It's with the individuals and families. Are we taking care of our most important folks? And so 2010-5 provides an initial framework that I think organizations can start with. Then we can talk about messaging. You know, I learned something from Eunice Kennedy Shriver when I started in Special Olympics. Of course, that was a, a life and career changing experience as a college intern. But she had this formula that I still use to this day. She called mission, vision, action. I think a lot of small nonprofits articulate well what they do. And they can make a case for the activity that they Provide whoever they're serving, individuals, families, organizations, and such. Where I think organizations struggle, however, is articulating their vision. And so Mrs. Shriver was really adamant about we need to describe to people what we do. We need to talk about, more importantly, where we're going. We serve 30,000 individuals with developmental disabilities in North Carolina, let's say. But her point would be there are 100,000 more that need us. And so I tell organizations, do you tell the story the same way? Mission is what you do, but do you articulate vision as to the need that still exists that you're going to serve? And so final point to complete Mrs. Shriver's formula, she always said, and again, I say this to small organizations, specifically, why do you need their help? What is the action? And so Mrs. Shriver in this formula, here's what we do. Here's why what we do is important, because there are a lot more that need us. And then finally, here's what we're going to do this year to help. Something tangible.
1: Patton, let's drill down on that. So you're given the example of the Special Olympics and Ms. Shriver. So talk to us about the Special Olympics mission, and then their vision, and then their action.
0: Mrs. Shriver was so... Uh, effective in articulating all three of these elements because the mission in many cases is evident for an organization like hers. When she founded it, she was very clear in articulating, we are providing year-round opportunities for individuals with developmental disabilities in Olympic-style competition and training. And so people generally had a good idea, and I would suggest most organizations do a pretty good job of articulating that. If I go to their website, they have some form of poetry in their evidence there that tells what they do. Fewer, however, I think can articulate where they're going, their vision. And so Mrs. Shriver was quick to say, tell them what we're doing, but be able to articulate that there is still a need that we're going to meet. So, again, using an example in any state or, frankly, for any organization, you can describe how many you're serving, but there's always more that needs to be done. So that was the vision that Mrs. Shriver, in essence, required us to be able to share. We're serving 30,000 now in the state of North Carolina, but there's 100,000 more that need us. And then, finally, the action was a specific, tangible course that frankly, a donor could understand my investment will help you do the new program. Let's say it's tennis in eastern North Carolina that would help us tangibly move toward our vision.
1: So just to be clear, when you're saying vision, that it's not necessarily the organization's stated vision like in their strategic plan, but for example, it is the vision of we want to serve 100,000 people a year, not 30,000 people a year. And the action we need is donor for you to make a gift that subsidizes the opening event or something like that.
0: That's a great point. She would often, in fact, encourage us to plant a flag. If there's 100,000 more that need us in the next five years, we're going to get to half of them. And so it became a rally cry for the organization, aspirational indeed, and a challenge But to me, that was more compelling for a donor, as you and I talked about earlier, than help us meet budget or help us get through our struggles. I think donors rally around aspirational goals like that. And so the vision would be some numeric form of let's get to half or two thirds of the population we're trying to reach. Can you maybe think
1: of a donor who really rallied around that, whether it was the Special Olympics or one of the universities you were at?
0: Well, it was with Special Olympics, and the example I use in North Carolina was the addition of sports that could serve an adult population. Many people think of Special Olympics in terms of school-age participants, when in fact the movement is very much for all ages. And so we were able to inspire some donors who realized that adult athletes just like you and I may have run track and field as high school students, but perhaps we're not sprinting as much now as adults. Well, the same is true for Special Olympians. And so we were intent upon on providing bocce and tennis and golf, cycling, sports that suited that population. And frankly, donors understood because they were going through a similar life cycle of participation and we got some significant gifts as a result.
1: Nice. Now, I know you're doing a lot of talent development with fundraisers as well. What are some of the greatest needs within fundraising offices and departments around building your fundraising team?
0: Well, it, both the staff and the board side, what we're seeing a lot of is the interaction between staff and their board members as it relates to fundraising is one of the most critical needs. Not aligned and challenges from the staff side, we can't get our boards engaged, or they're micromanaging us at a level that's not productive. And so from a fundraising perspective, the clear job description of the board member and how he or she might support fundraising efforts is often involved in a lot of our training components. Getting the board member comfortable with their ability to open doors and not feel the pressure of solicitation which I think, you know, scares a lot of board members away from productive activity. Also, though, Dolph, providing professional development on the staff side. We're struggling with turnover in our sector. And so it just hurts every element of fundraising if our staff continue to turn over and there's no continuity in the relationship building required. So
1: if we can just jump back real quick, I definitely want us to talk about staff turnover and fundraising. I agree with you. I know we are currently in a pandemic, but the fundraising epidemic is staff turnover. So I agree with you 100% on that. Indeed. But let's first jump back and chat a little bit about how we get our board members more involved in fundraising. So let's assume that you've put together a job description. Gosh, it's still scary even to do the introduction. What are some things that development teams can do to engage their board members in fundraising? What are some structures they can create?
0: I use a similar framework to described earlier, the 2010-5, or some method to prioritize and frankly not intimidate board members who often come from organizations that have asked them to basically chase their entire Rolodex or their entire contact list, selling tickets, selling tables, selling sponsorships. I think board members come in fatigued often to your organization because of previous experience. And i found great success when I can go to a board and say, hey, our organization is going to, in essence, be made or broken by the relationships with 25 to 30 entities, individuals, businesses, foundations. If each of you board members, let's just say we have a board of 15. If each of you could help us own the relationship for two or maybe three entities, we're going to be successful. And I find the angst, That board members may show up with tends to be relaxed because they're like, all right, I have the time and the energy to help invest in three relationships because you're not making me chase 25 or 30. It's interesting you say that. I I, I was an executive director for about a dozen years.
1: I was a fundraiser for a decade before that. And so often... When there's this expectation that every board member buy or sell a table, what I see happen is the board member buys the table, they drop $1,000, $2,500, whatever the cost of 10 seats at that table is, they bring their spouse and they give away eight tickets to friends who maybe each give $50 or $100 in the fund a need, but aren't actual prospects. So I think what you're suggesting is, hey, board member, help us find one person or two people or three people who will be an actual prospect of giving 10, 15, 20,000.
0: Absolutely right. And often I think the staff can identify folks that board members may have a way to triangulate and help us get in the door as opposed to only asking the board member to chase their friends and contacts. Often the organization has institutional knowledge and we can go to the board and say, hey, we had a very generous support from the Smith family 10 years ago. How can we get back to the Smith family who've not been engaged of late? And board members, I think, are willing to help strategize there, especially if you don't feel like you're trying to only milk their list of friends and contacts.
1: Right, right. The other thing that I think happens so often when what you are doing is kind of milking their friends and contacts is you get gifts out of reciprocity. So you know, so the board member gave $250 to you know, their friend Ted's organization, and then Ted gives $250 to the board member's organization. But when that board member leaves the board, you lose both gifts.
0: You are so right. When I was leading the fundraising at Queens University in Charlotte, Hugh McCall, formerly the Bank of America chairman, said exactly that. And so we had to be sensitive to that point. He's like, yes, I might be able to help you here, but I'm going to get hit up just as quickly And we may lose the long-term kind of philanthropy of this contact if you only play that kind of game. Right,
1: right. Now, I promised we're also going to talk about what's epidemic in fundraising, which is fundraising staff coming in and leaving in 18, 36, 48 months. Let's talk about that.
0: Indeed. People often point to compensation as the problem. I don't think that's the leading issue. I think, frankly, we parachute people in with very poor orientation, we give them too much to do, and while their passion for the mission can carry them for 12, 18, or 24 months, ultimately we burn them out with unrealistic expectations. We tell them we want them to fundraise, but then we continue to pile on. It's, hey, can you redo our website, or can you add to the newsletter, can you run another event? and we allow board members to pile on, and they want to do a golf tournament, and they want to do this and that. And so I really think the best thing you can do to keep your talent, particularly in fundraising, is to narrow their focus. Let them actually fundraise without distraction. Otherwise, there are going to be opportunities outside the current one, and they're going to leave.
1: What does a chief executive do? To keep their board members from piling on to the development staff to say, oh, can you do this bake sale? And can you do this gold exchange sale? And this and that.
0: Illustrate some of the principles of where the money's coming from. As you know, when we talk about overall giving, the money is with the individuals and families in terms of overall philanthropy in the United States. So I like to demonstrate, even with a pie chart, because most organizations reflect something close to that. And if they don't, they need to be educated about the opportunities. And so we need our board members to understand that, frankly, nickel and diming, the donor pool, ultimately hurts us. And so if they can understand the great value and, frankly, the efficiency, if we can develop a relationship with a major donor prospect that has a multiplier effect to what money we can raise. And hopefully we can then discourage the well-intentioned smaller ideas. And if we don't, however, give our board members some activity around those major donors, they're energized people. And we don't provide them with ideas, they're gonna bring them to the table. So in, in some ways, I don't wanna blame board members because it's up to us as staff to give them a focused set of activities.
1: Listeners can't see this. You and I can see each other. I'm smiling. Last year, I kind of said that to a coaching client. It was someone who was having some issues with their board. And I actually said to the person, I think you're not giving your board enough to do. And so they're finding all these things for you to do. You need to find things for them
0: to do. Absolutely right. And I also advise development directors to have the same philosophy toward their executive director. Agreed. Because executive directors are passionate and they're energized. And if you don't give them kind of strategic opportunities to get involved in development, they're going to keep asking you, why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? And that's also, I think, a source sometimes, Dolph, of that departure is the development director and the relationship with the ED becomes strained.
1: Right. I will also say, and and obviously I came to become an executive director through fundraising, but so many EDs do not come through fundraising. And they really do need that development director or that lead fundraising person who sets them up for success in fundraising, because they may have become an executive director without ever done an ask before, or
0: ever knowingly cultivated a major donor. That's so true, and I'm part of a program here in Charlotte called Leadership Gift School, which was founded on that principle, development directors talking to the philanthropic community, the investors, and indicating that our executive directors are not as engaged in the process. And frankly, funders want to see the CEO. And so if they're not part of that process to seek investment, the organization is going to suffer. And so we've set up a cohort model where executive directors and directors of development participate together to talk about that dynamic of how they can partner more effectively.
1: It's interesting you say that, because in in helping some organizations with strategic planning every now and then, especially those that are small and do not yet have a dedicated fundraising person, will say, well, in this plan, I really want to get a development director because then I as the executive director won't have to do any fundraising and I typically say you need to understand you're probably you will probably spend more time doing fundraising once you have a development director it'll be more higher level things but you will spend more time you'll go to more coffees you'll do more cultivation work your workload in fundraising will go up
0: could not agree more and hopefully it'll be even more effective because a good development director is going to play to your strengths as the executive and put you in the right positions to be successful. Right,
1: right. So care and feeding of the development director. Here's what we've got from you so far. Yeah, sorry, that's always what I've thought of it as, is care and feeding of your development director. So the first thing I've got is give the person a doable job, not three jobs, but one doable job, have reasonable goals for the person, and make sure there's a strong relationship that's built between the chief executive and whoever's leading fundraising. Anything else that organizations should be thinking about to keep their fundraising staff happy and ultimately keep their fundraising staff?
0: Uh, A big believer as you are in professional development. And I think sometimes executive directors are fearful if I encourage too much professional development by my fundraiser that they're gonna have more career ambition and leave me. But quite honestly, even if that happens, you create an atmosphere and a culture that other talented individuals would want to join. So if you're trying to restrict your talented folks from advancing themselves, you're only hurting yourself. They're going to leave anyway. And so you're better off to create a culture that is engaged for your talent. And even if they do leave, they're likely to recommend someone to follow them as opposed to creating this vacuum that often is hard to fill. But to me, I I see many more examples. When you invest in your person's professional development, they stay. Because you are right. giving them opportunities. So I encourage a specific annual professional development plan and give executive directors and development directors a framework of 10 skills and experiences they can both work on, which I think is motivating and helps strengthen the fundraising effort.
1: That is such a really good idea. And also, I think it's such a good idea as employers to think of ourselves as helping someone get to the next point in their career, not trying to trap someone here for as long as, as we can possibly keep them.
0: Right. It's similar to desperation fundraising. It might work <laughs> for a short time, but ultimately you're pulling the rug on your own organization.
1: Right. And and you know, for an organization to be able to point and say, oh, look, this person was a first-time development director with us, and 10 years later, they're running development for this larger institution. That's impressive, and it helps you recruit talent, even if you're a $2 million organization.
0: Could not agree more.
1: Well, it's funny. I actually just stole that from you because you said it, and, and I was like, oh, let me repeat that because that's such a good idea. I have to own that. Like mine. Like mine. Because, Patton, I promise you, the listeners are thinking that. They're like, okay, Dolph probably just stole that idea because Patton just said it, but and I want to make sure that we've got some time to talk about the off-the-map question. It just gives our listeners a glimpse into you as a person. And I know that you have mentioned you're an avid reader. Indeed. What books would you most recommend to our listeners?
0: You know, what was transformational for me a couple of years ago was Cal Newport's book called Deep Work. And I have since read just about everything else he has published, including Digital Minimalism, more recently. But Deep Work, in a quick summary, suggests that we are often obsessed with multitasking, which cognitive science disproves is possible, and yet we continue to pull ourselves in too many directions. And so Newport's book, again, Deep Work, was just transformational for me in terms of focusing on productivity And spending quality time and not just quantity based activities. So that is one I, I tend to start with. I've tried to get all three of my kids to read it with mixed results. I still think they're in the college, recent college graduate age, and I wonder if they do believe they can multitask their way through things. But I'm convinced his, what Cal often describes as an analog mindset often is as effective, if not more so than the digital environment in which we often live.
1: Mm, nice. I love that recommendation. Thank you. And listeners, just to kind of share with you, at the end of each episode in Patton's podcast, he asks the guest for a book they would recommend that everybody read. So I figured Turnaround was fair play. I really enjoyed <laughs> listening to his podcast. And I forgot it was fair play to ask him that question as well. Patton, thank you so much for talking with us today.
0: Dolph, it's been a pleasure. Again, I love the work you're doing and the messages you're lifting up, and so I'm delighted to be part of it.
1: Well, thank you. And listeners, if today's conversation really spoke to you, then make sure you check out PMA Consulting's website at paddenmcdowell.com. From this website, you can get to Patton's podcast, Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership. You can also access nonprofit leadership stories, book recommendations, and just a wealth of resources about everything we have discussed today and more. Now, let me give you the down low on something. Patton expects to release a book also titled Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, and he's expecting it to come out this December. So it's the perfect end of year or new year gift for yourself. So make sure you keep an eye out for it. And lastly, if you want to reach out to Patton because you just can't get enough, obviously subscribe to his podcast, but you can also find him on LinkedIn. Patton, thanks so much again. I'm so grateful you came on.
0: Dolph, much appreciated. Thank you.
1: Listeners, I would not blame you if you were adding Patton's book recommendation to your reading list and therefore missed the link to his website. So make your way over to our website at successfulnonprofits.com where you can find the link we mentioned, a link to his LinkedIn page and also a link to the book Deep Work. After you've got your reading list squared away, I would appreciate it though if you took a few minutes to share this podcast with your colleagues. It's how we can keep growing and reaching more people. And if that's not your style and you're a first-time listener, then just hit subscribe so that you will get this podcast every week when it comes out. That, dear listeners, is our show for the week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode of our podcast, a reverse edition. Uh, You can also check out Dolph's appearance on our podcast. Go to the show notes. And you can see a link to his interview on your path to nonprofit leadership, as well as the original of the episode you just listened to on the Successful Nonprofits podcast. Thanks for tuning in and thanks for listening to these conversations that hopefully will help you on your journey to nonprofit leadership. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you next time on The Path.